Uh, today, we continue. Uh, if you're new, first time visiting with us, uh, we have, we're in a mini-series on adoption, the doctrine of adoption. So adoption, a seat at the table, is what we're spending three weeks on. Today is sermon number two in this series. So as we're talking about the doctrine of adoption, a seat at the table, I want you to, by way of introduction, we're going to go all the way back to the Old Testament. You know, after King David took the throne, he did something that was interesting. A lot of the things he did as he became king of Israel, we expected. It was great to see. But in 2 Samuel 9, we see David come, and then he says, hey, who is among the family, anybody um, of Jonathan's house or, or from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to? He walks in. You see there in the first verse, he says, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is interesting because he's now saying, I'm going to show kindness to someone that could lead a rebellion to take this throne from me. If anybody's going to say, hold up. Yeah, you're the new king in town, but my grandfather was king. My father was in line. Thus, I'm going to be here, and they could, and we see it done throughout history, someone else lead an uprising to say, I'm going to take that throne. So you don't normally see a king decide, I want to show kindness, not just to anybody, but someone that could be a threat. You can imagine advisors maybe saying, that's not the move we should take. Other times throughout world history, uh, when someone takes over, ran you in charge of a kingdom, they may find whoever could be a threat, whoever could say they claim as, you know, the next heir, they may totally el eliminate them in their family line as protection that nobody's going to take it from them or from their descendants. But here, David says, who can I show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? His best friend. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 8, uh, or 2 Samuel 9, verse 6, you know, they announced to him, hey, Mephibosheth, there's, there's a son of Jonathan that when he was young, while fleeing, the nanny or the nurse dropped him, and, and he's crippled. He injured his legs. He is now crippled. He's in Lodabar. He's there. He's a son of Jonathan. So David says, hey, bring him here. Now Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He fell face down and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He goes, I'm your servant. And then David told him, don't be afraid. Since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth knew it was not custom. He was expecting something else. He quickly came, fell face down, and was like, hey, I'm, I'm no threats. I'm your servant. And David's like, no, no, well, hold up. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore to you what was your grandfather's, and you're going to have a seat at my table. And we see at the end of verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. 
throughout the chapter, and especially as that chapter ends, we were reminded that Mephibosheth is crippled. Because before this summon from the king, he's helpless, literally. He has no protection anymore. He's hopeless. All that was his grandfather and his father's is gone with his new regime change. And now he's before the king. King David is showing kindness for Jonathan's sake. It takes Mephibosheth in and he gets to enjoy this gift of grace from David and sits at his table as one of the king's sons. You know, in this series entitled Adoption, A Seat at the Table, this narrative of David's kindness to Mephibosheth paints a beautiful picture of what we're talking about today with the doctrine of adoption. We as believers have a seat at the table, but at such a greater level than we read here with King David. Mephibosheth gained privileges that changed forever the trajectory of his life. Christian, at the time of our salvation, we were adopted by the king and given privileges so wonderful and helpful for our lives today and for the future. In a sermon entitled simply, The Privileges of Adoption, we'll continue on in our series on the doctrine of adoption. Last week, Pastor Hackey spoke on the pillars when we looked at what it, how it, why it's different from regeneration or from justification, what it means and why it's so unique to see adoption as part of our salvation, as part of our Christian life. But today we'll take a step forward and talk about its privileges. The big idea today I submit to you is that the privileges that come with adoption is that God is our Father and the church is our family. The privileges that come with adoption is that God is our Father and the church is our family. Let's pause for prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to preach. I pray that the Holy Spirit move freely amongst us today. Free us from distraction. May we be encouraged if we need encouragement. May we be challenged and convicted if we are in sin or lacking in faith. Lord, I pray that if anyone does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Be with me. Give me clarity of mind, clarity of speech. As I preach your word, may all be done to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So when we come here, or actually, sorry, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll start when we're looking at the privileges of adoption. Romans 8, starting in verse 14. Romans 8, 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. From this passage in Romans 8, we see the first privilege of adoption. The first privilege is that God is our Father. God is our Father. When we see this privilege of God as our Heavenly Father, 
maybe due to, if you're like me at times growing up in church, it's a saying or a statement that maybe has lost the gravity of what it means to say, God, our Father, to claim that God is my heavenly Father. Now, when you use the term Father, sometimes you may be sitting in your seat, you got a positive, you have a negative view. No matter positive or negative, nothing is as greater. No Father here on earth can be greater than a heavenly Father that we have. It's amazing to think about when you saw there Romans 8, that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies that He is our Father. And the first privilege that gives out so many benefits from it is that God is our Father. We have a seat at the table, but we're not at a restaurant with just a random host. You're not going to your friend's house. When I talk about a seat at the table, waiting for them to serve whatever it is just out of kindness, this is your Father's table. You have extra privileges when you're sitting there because He is taking care of you. You're not paying anything. He's not saying, I just got you a one-time invite. You have a permanent seat at the table. You will forever be his child if he is your father. What's interesting here is when the Spirit testifies, we saw in Romans 8, we cry out, Abba, Father. It's unique with the benefit of seeing this privilege as God as our Father is this intimate, this close relationship we have with him as a father. Abba, Aramaic term, for dad, papa, daddy. Just imagine for those who have children when they're young, their voice, they don't know exactly what your job is. They don't know if you're famous to the outside world or if nobody knows you. But if you enter through that door, they're yelling out, dad, and they want to see you. Because there's something unique in it and intimate with them knowing who you are because you are their father. It's amazing to see the innocence of that with the young children. But as you grow and grow, I have a dad in San Antonio. I call him, it's dad. I don't say, Jeffrey Schoenrock, please, I'd like to speak to you. Oh, that's cold, that's weird, that's just his name. But for my first thoughts always is, that's dad. Here the Spirit gives us the ability to cry, Abba, Father, this intimate, personal personalization of who this God is to us. You know, one writer said, certainly it is true that God is our creator, our judge, our Lord and master, our teacher, our provider and protector, and the one who by his providential care sustains our existence. But the role that is most intimate and the role that conveys the highest privileges of fellowship with God for eternity is his role as our heavenly father. Maybe it's lost the weight of how awesome that is. We hear it so much. Sometimes it's an automatic gap filler in our prayers without having much intention. Where you heard so much that you're going, oh yeah, that's great. But have you paused and you really meditate and sit in the truth that saying that this almighty God, holy God, the one that judged the world with floods, the God that's going to judge again and is continuing to judge today, he's, he's Father. He's my Father. What does that do for you? I hope it does not lose its luster or, or, or the amazing part of what that means. Because as a good Father, we see that God in Scripture tells us He loves us. I mean, when it comes to 
101, how do you become a Christian? It's because he sent his only son for you. Not because you filled out an application and requested for something. No, he proactively said, for my pleasure, I'm going to send my son for you. That's a love that makes no sense to us because there is nothing we could have done to earn that. Neither is there anything we could do to match that, but he freely gives. He loves you and me. If you're a believer today, it's amazing to think about. In 1 John 3, 1, John reminding the believers that were downtrodden, had a lot of different attacks, he says, see what great, the lo- see what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. It was like in the middle of that letter, John is like, let's pause. I want to encourage you again. You are his children, and he loves you. How much of a reminder do we need that all the time? Either A, to help us when we get out, get out of whatever is bringing us down, if it be uh, something of dis- heavy discouragement, the reminder of God loves me helps. Or if you're one that's neglecting God's word, or one that is living in right now in a season of sin, how wrong is it for me to live like this when I know God loves me? Why would I do this to him? That love of a good father does so much for us as a Christian. And then as a good father, God understands us. The psalmist writes, Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we're made of, remembering that we are dust. This understanding is like, oh, that's kind of a terrible ending. We're dust? We're so finite. We have so much in limitations. We have failed oh so much. He's infinite. He's the creator of all, yet he understands. He sends the Holy Spirit to help us and equip us. He knows what you need. He has plans for you, for what you can do for him and his kingdom here. He understands you. Hardest part sometimes for any relationship, be a friendship, or if you're in a marriage or in a dating relationship, is can this person understand me? It doesn't stop at your favorite color or your favorite meal. But when they know those imperfections, those things that are lacking, and they're there to help as a partnership. How great is it, the one that knows all, but also can help in all ways as he understands you. As a father with children, you may see your your children and knowing that, hey, I got to help teach him this. Oh, I know he's a little more stubborn, so I got to really be patient here and, and, and be persistent in teaching him this or that. I'm not going to put my kid in this situation because he's afraid of people and public speaking. A good father understands his children. And that is God, our Heavenly Father. He understands you. Even if you're in the middle of thinking nobody gets you, nobody wants to get to know who you are, God understands you for his child. And he wants you to not to just know things about him, but to get to know him more. So he knows you and he understands you and he's there for you. Then we see as a good father, God provides for us. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 7, he goes, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus, pointing plate, just right there, very bluntly goes, You guys are evil, yet you know how to give good gifts to your children. And then he's just saying, Imagine how better or how much more God, your Father, who is perfect, who can supply all, how much better his gifts are for you 
what he can do for you. Man, who can provide? And he's not leaving us lacking. He gives us what we need to, in order to honor and glorify him here as we live this life. And then what we saw in the Romans 8 passage, talking about we're going to be an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. As a good father, he has an inheritance for us. Every father wants to pass down something from him to the other generation. And if he's blessed, he wants to bless, uh, pass something on to another generation. It may not just be money, it may be his knowledge, his thoughts. There's an inheritance that we look to pass down. God and the inheritance that we're heirs of. Now thinking on the other side of eternity, something that's there for us to have. We see in Galatians, Paul reminds the church, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Then God has made you an heir. Peter, in talking to the church uh, for believers that are scattered, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Believer, let me challenge you to really take in and enjoy knowing you have an inheritance. We have to have a better mind or better set uh, focus on eternity, on what's going to come. Sometimes we're, we're so instant gratification. We want this and that. We sin or we enjoy less of what it means to be a child of God because if it's not tangible, if it's not here, if I can't grab it, if I can't take it, then why am I going to put any waiting or work into it? When you understand that God keeps his promises, and if there is an inheritance that Peter describes, it's imperishable, it's not fading. Guys, no matter how much money you have, you could lose it. It could be stolen. No matter if you're a collector of things that are valuable, they can be broken. They can fade away and lose value. And imagine those that are receiving these notes, just like Peter is writing to those that are scattered under persecution, who probably have lost everything. And then he should remind them, hey, on that side of eternity, your, God, your father, he's got a great inheritance for you. Have we lost focus on that? Do we need to readjust, calibrate, and think, Lord, give me a better yearning and loving knowledge of what's to come and enjoy that as what's given to me or promised to me as your child. All the great privileges and blessings of heaven are laid up for us and put at our disposal because we are the children of the king, members of the royal family, princes and princesses who will reign with Christ over the new heavens and in the new earth. It's promises we see in Re Revelation 2 and chapter 3. A glimpse of what is to come. This inheritance as a good father, God provides for us. So when we think of God as our father, I know this past week with the ladies' prayer meeting and the last month when the men's prayer meeting, we focused on the Lord's prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is memorized by a whole lot of people. Even if you don't go to church, people will know instantly what the Lord's Prayer is. When I was younger, I used to find the, the don't judge me too hard, okay? I used to find the Lord's Prayer really annoying, all right? Because everybody just kept mumbling through it. And I would have to, my senior year, you're in Texas, and you're about to run through um, whatever to announce, here's the high school football team. The one thing I think every team does is the Lord's Prayer before. And for some reason, because guys knew I, was go I always went to church, they're like, Shonra, you got the prayer. 
So lead in prayer. But the second I say amen, there we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, and everybody would just, it was like a chant. There was a rhythm to it. I don't know if you can get prayer that's intense, but it was. But it used to annoy me, you know, as a little self-righteous teenager. I would never say it. I would say the amen, and then I would just stand in the middle of this group of dudes and just let them say their thing. I know you. I know this guy. I know that guy. Really? You're praying? Come on. All right? I didn't go to a Christian school where we could all give you everybody. I went to a regular school in Texas, and I'm just like, why do we do this? Because people look at it either as a superstition or something that they need to have or have memorized. But when you try to renew your mind that God is your heavenly Father, and you go through that passage in Matthew of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples, and he begins it with, say this, our Father in heaven. It continues on. The Holy God, we're starting to make a petition to the Sovereign King, and we get to start that petition with Father. Normally, if I'm going to write a petition to anybody that's in government, or if he's way up in my company or organization I work at, I'm not really going to start off with a personal name, even if I know them. Hey, Brian. No. You're going to be like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I understand. You know, it gives gravity if you've got a high position. Jesus is teaching us in prayer, we're going before God, and we get to say, Father. And then you think of the petition later. Father in heaven, forgive us our sins, so forgive those who sinned against us. This is not simply a prayer of justification. That's happened once. This is a prayer of forgiveness. This daily prayer of forgiveness of sins is not a prayer that God would give us justification again and again throughout our lives. Because that's a one-time event that occurs immediately after we trust Christ with saving faith. Rather, the prayer of forgiveness of sins each day is a prayer that God's fatherly relationship with us which has been disrupted by sin that displeased him, be restored. And that he relate to us once again as a father who delights in his children whom he loves. When we see that prayer, we see the instruction to say, Lord, forgive me. It's because we desire to have that intimate, close relationship of a father with a child. Not because we're thinking it's going to get me into heaven for just saying this. No, this is a prayer that we get to enjoy as the children of God letting us know we have communication with our Father. As God is our Father, we, we see that He's given us the Holy Spirit. Throughout that passage in Romans 8, the Spirit is given to us. He testifies that we're the child of God. We don't have a spirit of fear. We have the ability to say, Abba, Father. You know, the identifying, identifying mark of a believer or a child of God is that we're led by God's Spirit. We are equipped with the Holy Spirit. Yes, God reigns. It's above, and we try to think, where is he? I can't. He didn't leave us alone. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit as believers. So Father wants to take care of us, and he gives to us part of the Trinity. God, the Spirit, Holy Spirit indwelling, leads us. It's a marker of one that is a child of God. It's a challenge to those that may have what I call a false profession of faith. By your works or your fruits, are you really led by the Spirit? Let me tell you, if you're not, I don't want you to take comfort in thinking you're a child of God. Sometimes we're too quick to say that. In a society that we don't want to condemn any and we want all to be accepted, we all think, oh, we're all God's children. You're not. Because if 
all, no matter who we are, what status, are claimed to be God's children, then what's special about having a seat at the table? What's special? What was needed for Jesus to be sent? It is unique, and it's a privilege. Call God your Father for Him to say, you're my child. For a believer, may we take great encouragement, but also motivation, knowing this Holy Spirit that identifies us is something that we need to always keep in front of mind. I want to submit to the Spirit. I want to follow His leading because my Father's will is laid out before me. The only way I can accomplish that, to live a life that pleases Him, to build His kingdom on earth, is to follow the Holy Spirit. As a good father, the Holy Spirit helps us as we grow in maturity. In Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews writes to the believers that God disciplines his children. Sometimes we run too much to the negative of this, but when we see that God, the discipline part is he corrects, he helps us. It's our progressive sanctification. Hebrews 12, endure suffering as disciples. As endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit, submit even more to the Father of Spirit and live? For they disciplined, for us, disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But talking about God. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. We're not left to our own. Just as earthly children grow in obedience and righteousness when they are disciplined properly by their earthly fathers, so we grow in righteousness and holiness when we are disciplined by our heavenly Father. You're not just given a title and left alone. You leave a child alone at home that doesn't have certain skills, it's a disaster. When you see somebody that ignores their children and does not have to take time to disciple or show them, hey, this is what's right, I'm going to teach you these things, you sit there and you go, this child is in a, in a terrible situation. Your father doesn't love them enough to show them what is right and what is wrong. Does not take time to teach. Does not take time to correct and say, hey, no, don't do that. Here's why. Here's what we're going to practice on. Those are traits of a good earthly father. So much greater it is that God, as our Heavenly Father, gives us the Holy Spirit, the benefit of the privilege of knowing that God is our Heavenly Father, that we can grow correctly. We're not left to our own devices where we'll make a whole lot of mistakes. The Holy Spirit is there to lead us. God is such a great, good Father. He's our Heavenly Father. And when we look and we start comparing it and seeing even it from an earthly father to him being the heavenly father, you should take encouragement. It should also challenge you. Are you enjoying this relationship? Or is he just a graven image you may pray to from time to time, or a badge or a bumper sticker you might throw on the back of your car? Or is he truly your father and you enjoy it? We get to call the Holy One Father such a great privilege we enjoy at adoption. We're now seated at God's table. We're enjoying being at his table. But look around the table. Christian, look around the table. You're not alone. The second privilege we enjoy at our adoption is that 
the church is our family. The second privilege is that the church is our family. If God is our Father, then all of us that are redeemed and we gather as a local body of believers, known as the church, the ecclesia, this is our family. You're not alone in your Christian life. You are surrounded by other believers. That's why we really believe, very importantly, on the gathering of believers, the importance of church, the importance of community, because this is a privilege we have as a child of the King, that we have a family. We have a family here on earth of believers. You know, Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. See that? We, we gain from there the, the vernacular we use, brother, sister in Christ. Now, my childhood, I grew up in the South, okay? Everybody's brother and sister. I heard it so much, it, kind of, it really did lose what was unique and special about it. Because I, I, I put it together with Southern hospitality, all right? Just like in the South, if you go to any restaurant, you're, you're also known as honey, dear. Okay, child, for your waitress, your waiter, they, they, there's always terms of endearment in the South. They may ne- never have seen you before, but they'll give you a term of endearment when they're meeting you and greeting you. So at church, I thought, hey, brother and sister, that's just what they call. But it's because we're part of a, a family that we should see each other as a family. You know, when it, we see each other as a family, our relationship with other Christians should be different. There should be something unique and extra special about having a brother and sister in Christ. Paul's instructions to the church in Galatians, Galatians says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It should be a deeper care. This is not a coworker that you may sit next to in a cubicle. You ask how their weekend is, and then you move on. We should have something that develops more into deeper care. That's why you, you look at our community groups. What's really unique about meeting us every time? Why can't we just meet at this one and hear instruction and be good to go? Because how can you care for each other? Yeah, you can do it on your own. But how many do you give lip service to that rather than really putting some action to it? So us as a church, we really want to make that important because there are those that can attend church very faithfully and literally not know the name of the person sitting next to them. Because we get busy. You're running late or you might be serving different things. So we have to really take time to try to get to know other people. It's hard at times. So you put in extra effort. Because what it means to be a Christian is to have deeper relationships. To be saying you're part of a covenant community really means that you're going to grow deeper with these other believers that are around you. So are you treating your local church as family? Is church just a program, an event you attend? What's odd and what's terrible at times is you can find out people can leave a church or change churches, and it's almost like changing an outfit. Eh, I don't like it. Change outfit, no consequence. You may leave a church for a legitimate reason. But did it hurt a little bit? Did you miss people? Did they miss you? 
if someone ends up going from one place to another and you're not even sitting there thinking about, man, I'm moving away or I'm going somewhere else, I'm going to miss, list the people, miss this church, my church. I mean, I enjoy being here at Gospel Grace Church, but I do miss my brothers and sisters from Noblesville Baptist. You think about it. It's a joyous occasion when you're at the store, and we've been here for months, and all of a sudden I see somebody from NBC because I'm going, oh, yes, hey, how are you doing? You're part of my family. So do we treat the church as our family? Or is it something that we're looking at like, hey, how can you take care of my family? Me, my wife, and my three kids. Give me some programs. Give me some things. Good, and then you leave rather than, this is a family reunion. We're getting together. We're getting to know each other. It's a challenge for us, especially as a young church. Can we really enjoy this body, this local body of believers as a family? And when we're a family, we're, when we think of God as our father and we're his children, we're called to imitate him, to imitate our father. You have Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. You know, we bring honor to our heavenly fathers. We imitate them well. As we walk the paths of righteousness, just like any good son will bring pride to his mother and father as he grows and does what's right, that relationship or that happening does not miss out when we think of God as our Heavenly Father. We are called to imitate Him. We have the ability through the Holy Spirit to imitate Him. Have you thought about that? Sometimes we just settle for the name. We're Christians. But if you personalize it more, you're child of God. Sometimes when you're in a smaller town, a name has a lot of weight. When you're in a bigger city, not as much. You've heard this before, but hey, somebody may go out and be like, hey, remember what your last name is. Don't embarrass me. You know, Hack probably tells his kids as they go off to school, you're McPhees. It comes with a lot, you two. You're McPhees. So when you go to school, you behave, you do what you're supposed to do because you're McPhee. You're like, it's a family name. You don't want to be the opposite. Oh, those are shown rocks. Oof. They're not on my class roster. We're good. Sorry for you. If you're a teacher, you kind of know that. You got these kids that other teachers talk about, and you're like, ah, he's in my class. The name follows. You want to have a positive. How weird and how disappointing it is for you to tell somebody, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, and they go, oh, really? Because maybe in your life, in your interaction, you do nothing that really imitates well. You're in sin, or you lack discipleship, and you're not showing forth through actions. You don't have to be somebody that's preaching it. You're just somebody that's supposed to be showing it that says, hey, yeah, they are a child of God. We're called to imitate our Father. I ask you today, are you doing that? Or would there be embarrassment if you were to use that name? That, hey, I'm a child of God. And people just go, come on. We should strive and say, hey, I'm a child of the king. I have this great privilege of calling him my father. And I have this family 
No matter what your earthly family relationships look like, what's unique and what's special about the church family is that God gathers us together. There are many of you I will have nothing in common with other than we are a believer in Jesus Christ and we love his word and we love him. And that's more than enough to enjoy and grow together. And then we encourage each other to imitate well our father. That is the benefit of having the family. As a good family, a good structure here on earth, your earthly family, everybody helps each other. You don't want chaos and everybody's doing their own thing. You want to be able to say, hey, we're helping each other. Older sibling to younger sibling. Parent to child. If you're going back, there's help in getting everything done and making sure that the family business keeps going, that we get from place to place, that we accomplish things. So it was true with being a child of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a seat at the table. Our adoption gives us a new family, the local church. Imagine with me the first time Mephibosheth sat at King David's table. It ate with the king's sons. You know, Mephibosheth, he's enjoying the kindness shown to him by King David. He went from being helpless and hopeless to now enjoying the gracious gifts of King David. Now, King David's kindness to Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture for us of grace, and it illustrates well the kindness of God that is poured out upon us. We, like Mephibosheth, we're helpless. We are crippled by sin and left with no hope. A king, greater than King David, reaches out and changes our lives forever. God sent his one and only son to give our souls eternal hope. You talk about trajectory changed eternally by God, the kind king, for some reason, loving you and reaching down. Sacrificing oh so much to redeem you and to adopt you into his family. We have been adopted by the king of kings. We have a great hope. We are seated at his table and we're surrounded by the family. The great privilege of being adopted. May we never forget the privileges that come with adoption is that God is our father and the church is our family. The privileges that come with adoption is that God is our father and that the church our family.